We come to you humbly asking that you would teach us through your word that, Lord, just as we have seen this witness this morning through our baptism, through the songs that we have sung, through the prayers that we have given, that, Lord, we would respond in obedience to faith. And for that, Lord, we look to one whom you worked faith in, that you wrought faith in, and our father Abraham. We pray, Lord, that as we look at the example of his life, that you would teach us that through that, Lord, through specifically the words written about him, that your Holy Spirit would come and move us to glorify you all the more and respond in obedience. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, it seems like it'd be a given that following a Veterans Day that I'd be speaking to a group that would understand the phrase, a place of our own. There are some professions that have you moving constantly. The military is certainly one of those. I often will speak to those who were born in a military family, and I'll ask them, where are you from? And inevitably they say, well, just from a little bit of everywhere. Those of us in ministry move frequently as well. I have heard those accusations that the ministers are always seeking to take larger churches for the purpose of prestige, and I've rarely seen such a notion among my colleagues. Sometimes moves in ministries are because positions change, like my brother Brian, who is moving from youth ministry into a senior pastor position. And sometimes movement happens from a small church to a larger church because the pastor's family has grown, and the smaller church can no longer provide for his needs. But sadly, it mostly occurs because there is some dysfunction in the church. And lay leadership think the problem is the pastor and and want to change the guy at the top, much like a head football coach of a football team. But of course, none of us pastors ever get Jimbo Fisher severance package when that happens. If they did, I think I could live with that. Lisa and I have made several moves since we were first married. We were living in a dingy rental house in Black Mountain, North Carolina, when I received a call to become a youth pastor in a church in East Tennessee. We were so excited because the parsonage that we were going to was brand new. It had just been built. No one had lived in the house before. We had never lived in a new house before. We could not believe the blessing of all the amenities we had, like a dishwasher that was not named Blair, a fridge that actually made ice for you. You didn't have to pour it into the tray and and put it into uh, the uh, freezer. It was wonderful, but it was not ours. It belonged to the church. When we had our second child and sought to be near family and to help us out with that, four years later, we moved to Middle Tennessee near Lisa's parents. Our first home was a rental house that, I kid you not, was directly across the street from a drug dealer. He had this chain link fence around his yard, which he had two Rottweilers that would bark and let him know when anybody approached the house. We were terrified to let the girls play outside. Yet that was incentive for us to find a permanent home once we could get a down payment together. And finally, we found a home less than one mile from Lisa's parents in Estill Springs. I think all of us loved that little house, didn't we? We had a fenced-in backyard and a neat little patio with a bench swing and, and our own little garden to the side. Lisa and I felt like we had arrived. Finally, we had a place of our own, and we could say, this is home. That is, until I was called to a certain church in Alabama 11 years ago, and the process started all over again. 
Well, we have no intentions of of ever moving cities again, maybe downsizing it possibly at some point. But because of our frequent moves, we have always felt a little bit antsy about saying we're here permanently. This is finally a place of our own. Well, I present you with that long introduction to say our friend Abraham had a similar life. It would appear that he had no place to call home on the earth. And that will become apparent before us when we see his need to purchase property to buy a grave for his wife. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 22. Please turn there with me, if you will. That's found uh, on page 16 of your pew Bible. We're going to move all the way to the end of chapter 23, and there are three things that we need to note here. First, at the end of chapter 22, the narrator has chosen to inform the reader of what has happened with Abraham's brother Nahor that will affect the next few events in the book. Then second, Sarah dies in chapter 23, and Abraham mourns. And then third, he will purchase a grave that will feature several times in the lives of the patriarchs. So that's information about Nahor, Sarah's death, and then Sarah's grave here. Let's begin with the first of these. This, this interlude is appropriately placed because it deals with, with family matters that occur throughout the end of Abraham's life. Abraham returns to Beersheba after he nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. We read here in Genesis 22, verse 20, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Now, we've not heard these names since chapter 11 before Abraham received his call from God. Back then, we saw that Nahor was one of two of Abraham's brothers. And Nahor married the daughter of their brother Haran, whose name was Milcah. She would have been Abraham and Nahor's niece. Now, that was not unusual uh, for a custom in the ancient world, as it was usually a means of keeping property together. Nahor did not accompany Abraham when he was called by God out from the city of Ur. We're not sure of exact events, but later we're going to discover that his family migrated from Ur to the region of Paddan Aram. Now, I would also remind you that according to Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Abraham's birth family was completely pagan. They did not know Yahweh. Abraham was called out of that as well. Now, this five-verse interlude is important for two reasons here. First, we learn that Nahor has a son named Bethuel who becomes the father of Rebekah. This will be the family whom Abraham will seek a wife for his bereaved son later in chapter 24. It will also be the same family from whom his grandson, Jacob, will seek a a wife later in the story. That's the first reason of its importance. And second, we see that based upon fertility alone, Abraham's extended family is flourishing. Nahor has 12 sons, eight by Milcah and four by his concubine. Abraham and Sarah only have one son. Later in chapter 25, verses 12 through 18, we will read of Ishmael having 12 sons. Isaac only has two sons. But his son Esau will have exactly 12 sons, and Jacob will have 12 sons. This only serves to highlight the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. We are being told something of the nature of God's providence in their lives. The next family matter that we encounter is Sarah's death. Genesis chapter 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years 
And these were the years of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, there are three things here that we should note. First, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose full lifespan is mentioned. She dies at age 127, which means Isaac would have been about 36 or 37 years old at this point. Second, the family has moved in these years from among the Philistines in Beersheba, 32 miles to the north, back to Hebron among the Hittites. It only highlights the fact that this couple have no place to be called their own. Throughout their lifespans, just looking at my list here, throughout their lifespans, this couple have journeyed from Ur, what is in present-day Iraq, to Haran, which is in present-day Syria, to Hebron in Israel, and then to Egypt during a famine, then back to Hebron, and then down to Beersheba, and then now back again to Hebron. They have been promised this land, yet they still have no place to call their own. And third, and most importantly, notice how Abraham mourns Sarah. He weeps for her, and well he should. There are few pains worse than losing a spouse. I know I'm going to touch a, a nerve here among our widows and widowers. It's hard at any age. In fact, Don, I am not sure how you got through the reading this morning, brother. I am grateful that you were willing by faith to stand up here and read on our behalf. I can only imagine how difficult it is when one has spent a lifetime together raising children, seeing the highs and lows of careers and accomplishments, going through sickness and in health, the conflicts and the sweet moments. This is a loss. And I don't think he would mind, but some of you will remember one of our church members, Henry Smith. Those of you who didn't, Henry was a widower. He was faithful to be here every Sunday unless he was visiting his son down in Florida. And if you knew Henry, then it wouldn't take long for you to hear also about Betty, his wife who died of cancer. Henry couldn't help but still brag on her even though she had passed some 25 years previously. Henry and I had lunch almost every week, and it was inevitable that he would reminisce about Betty, how that man loved her and missed her. And here's the thing, that their relationship wasn't ideal or perfect. They went through some hard times together, but that was the point. They did life together, and now he was alone in that moment. He was in the world without her. He passed away a few years ago, and I wish I could have seen their reunion in heaven, don't you? Those of you who knew him. Here, Abraham has lost his friend, his companion. He was not a perfect husband, nor was she a perfect wife, but it is apparent that they love one another deeply. He cannot help but mourn his loss. The word dead is used eight times in this passage. We see in verse 2, he wept. A little later, we will see him humbly bow before the Hittites to acquire a grave plot. The Hittites see this great grief of Abraham, and they're willing to give him land for free. But Abraham insists on paying an exorbitant sum for it because she was worth it to him. This was a man in great pain losing his companion. 
I am so glad that the scriptures tell us that it's okay to lament and mourn, to know that it's all right to grieve and recognize that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it isn't. Death entered the world because sin entered the world. But we are given such assurances and promises that God will make things right. In fact, God's only Son, the Lord Jesus, would promise, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he can promise that because he conquered sin and death at the cross. And he approved that he achieved the victory over both by rising from the dead in his glorified body. And just as he is so shall we be, those of us who place our faith in what he did on the cross on our behalf. Abraham grieves and he desires a place to bury his dead. So he goes to the gates of the Hittite city. That's the place where business is conducted. And Abraham confesses that, that he is a sojourner there. He is a foreigner. He has much wealth. He has many men, a small army, in fact, abundant livestock. And wherever he lives, he blesses the people of the land as well. He is a welcome visitor. But Abraham has no property of his own. He and Sarah have no place of their own. So Abraham requests to purchase land from the Hittites. Now, historically, I just want to interject here, this is not the Hittite empire. But it is a sub-people group similar to those of the great empire. But look at how the Hittites address Abraham here in verse 6. Here is my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. They recognize Abraham's prestige and stature. They know that he serves the Lord. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. They all volunteer their own grave sites to Abraham to bury his relatives. But look at what this prince of God does next. He prostrates himself before the Hittites and begs to purchase the cave of Machpelah from Ephron the son of Zoar. Now don't get confused, Generation Z. All right, this is Ephron, son of Zoah, not Zach Ephron. Just making sure y'all are clear on that. Abraham wants to conduct a legal transaction for this cave. He wants to own this cave outright. Now, you may wonder, why is this place so significant to Abraham? Well, we learn why in chapter, or verse 17 here, that this was next to Mamre. That is the place where God formally struck his covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15. So between verses 10 and 16 here, we see this transaction for this property happen here. Abraham has only requested the cave, yet in front of the city leaders, Ephron offers to give Abraham both the field and the cave. But Abraham knows that Ephron could always later, or his family could later lay claim on the land unless he purchases it outright. So he insists on making the purchase. And in verse 15, Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silvers, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Now, 400 shekels of silver is an exorbitant amount, especially for this time period. David only paid 50 shekels of silver for the threshing floor that would later become the temple in Jerusalem. Ephron might have had two motives here. He may have been taking advantage of, of Abraham's grief, 
Or he may have been trying to outprice Abraham so that the prince of God must accept his land as a gift from him. We don't know his motives, but we do know is that because Ephraim names a price, Abraham does not barter with him. He simply counted out the money before the city leaders, making the transaction legal before the witnesses. Now, there's no coinage during this time, so he would have weighed out the silver in front of them. And here are the results. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Finally, Abraham has a small piece of property to call his own. But at what a cost. And we see that the whole purpose is for burying his dead. Otherwise, Abraham didn't need the land. We see that that is his sole purpose alone. Even though God promised to give Abraham's descendants the whole of the land of Canaan, he has not tried to acquire it at any point except on this one occasion. But as I said earlier, Machpelah becomes important to the patriarchs. Abraham will be buried here in chapter 25, verse 9. In chapter 49, verse 31, we learn that Isaac and Rebekah were buried here. And Joseph, along with Pharaoh's army, will make a procession from Egypt to Machpelah to bury his father in this same cave. And at the time that Genesis was composed, Moses is carrying around Joseph's bones with him through the wilderness in order to bury it here in Machpelah. It is the only land that this family can officially say they purchased outright. Therefore, it becomes a monument to the promise that one day God will make good on his word and give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. Now, if you're curious about its present site, a mosque was built on top of it in 1188. And it's been a place of contention between Judeo-Christians and Muslims ever since. But a question remains. Did Abraham purchase this property impatiently rather than wait for the Lord to give it to him? Kind of like when he and Sarah took matters in their own hands and used Hagar as a surrogate rather than waiting on Isaac. Was Abraham purchasing this property as a landmark for the promise, much like Jeremiah was commanded by God to to purchase property in Jerusalem before the exile as a promise that they would return there one day? I cannot say for sure what was running through Abraham's mind precisely at this moment, but what we can be certain of is that Abraham wanted a place to bury his relatives, not burn them as most pagans typically did. And I think that it was his desire to bury his family close to where he met the Lord. Like most of us, we all have places of sentimental value to us. But the writers of the New Testament tell us that there was a broader understanding of his wanderings on Abraham's part. Turn with me again back to Hebrews chapter 11. This is found on page 1007 of your pew Bible. Abraham's faith was in the God of the promise, not in the land, but in the God of the promise. 
that the Lord would always keep his word. So listen to how this inspired New Testament writer understood this situation. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And here's what Abraham had hope of, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, not something that Abraham was going to do, but something God was going to do. Verse 11, by faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. But this is the part that has relevance for us this morning. Verse 13. These all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear, meaning when they're using words like sojourner, stranger, exile, foreigner, they are saying that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out of, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now think about that for a moment. The inspired writer says that Abraham was looking forward to a better country, a heavenly one, something better than what this present earth offers. He wasn't just looking at Canaan going, "Mm -hmm, one day this will all be mine. At this point in his life, he was thinking of an eternal home with the Lord. I think because Abraham believed that Isaac could be raised from the dead, which we just read about about in the earlier passage, he was looking for a place to plant his loved ones, looking forward to the resurrection of the dead, to where they would be living in an eternal home together, a true place of their own for all of eternity. Abraham had faith that he would see Sarah again because the promise to him was still in place. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Funerals are difficult occasions for me. You you would think as a pastor, after doing numerous ones, and I've lost count on how many I've done, one would get used to them. But I find them to be so awkward. I am stuck in this strange place of understanding the grief of the deceased loved one and the joy for the one in which I'm bearing, that is, if they are a believer. On one hand, I understand the tremendous loss, the the absence of the one that we love so dearly, the the empty chair at the table, the the loss of the warmth of the spouse who is supposed to be sleeping beside you, the, the holiday that will forever be celebrated differently from this point on. It is heartrending. But at the same time, my faith informs me that this is only temporary. 
This is not what will happen in eternity. We will be reunited with our believing loved ones once again. It will be a joyful reunion to see not just them, but all the saints of old, all of us rallying around the throne and laying eyes upon Jesus and singing praise to him. So yes, to me, funerals are awkward between trying to find that right balance of mourning and rejoicing over a race well run. How do you comfort a soul at such a time without dismissing the lament they need to have? I believe you do so by looking to this example in Abraham. You bury your loved one temporarily, believing that God will raise them from the dead. And you know it can happen because we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. So yes, it hurts, but we are not a people who grieve without hope. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he has prepared for us a city. And this too is immensely useful for us now. We don't talk about heaven near enough. We don't talk about the final state of our souls near enough. We know that we are wanderers and that we are sojourners upon this present world. We too are strangers and exiles. And we know this because our hearts are restless. And we know something is not right with with this world due to its sin. And that is because we are bound for another land. One that we have yet to lay eyes on. And what eye has not seen nor ear has not heard of the glories that await his beloved. So when the storms come, folks, when the difficulties are overwhelming, when you are facing your own life-altering decisions and the illnesses that may put you in the grave, cast your eyes on Jesus, the glory of our faith, the one that we know has been risen from the dead in a glorified form, and the promise will be true for every person that believes in him. And if you believe such... If you believe that, God is not ashamed to be called your God, for he has prepared a city for you. It's amazing. I've been studying Psalm 102 throughout this entire year. Every Sunday morning before I come here, I wake up early so that I can spend time in Psalm 102. And uh, I'm just going to turn there. You're welcome to turn there if you want. I'm going to read just a small passage of it to you. Psalm 102 is for people who deal with painful affliction and depression. And it is a psalm that, that God has been using to let me know that he is still there even though I have dark moments in my life. And what amazes me is when I got to the end of this psalm, and in fact, I happened to finish this up as I meditated on each verse day by day, or each Sunday by Sunday as I got through, was what this writer of the psalm seemed to understand about this earth currently, and then what is going to happen in the future. This is what he writes, starting in verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's Genesis, right? They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. That's Revelation. 
You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Do you hear the state of this earth is going to be changed like a robe? And its present state is going to pass away. That's revelation as well. But you, Lord, are the same, and your years have no end. Now look at this. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. That's us. Though this world ends and transform, we, believers in Christ, we remain and we will be established by him forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how sweet a balm is your word. Which as we endure in this world, this sin, Lord, which seems so oppressive, sometimes it's the sin without that seems to overwhelm us, but usually, Lord, it's the sin within where we fail over and over again to achieve what we want to achieve before you. But that's just it. It's not about what we've achieved. It's about what Christ has achieved on our behalf. Not only has he secured our souls, but he has also secured our future dwelling place, the place where he is going to take us to be with him forever. It will be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. It will be glorious. It will be one without sin and one without the taint of death. There will be no more tears, no more mourning. Lord, we long for that. And we believe our brother, dear Abraham, longed for it as well. We leave by faith, Lord, that he buried Sarah, believing just as he did about Isaac, that you can raise the dead. And you can. Your word, your scriptures testify to it. The work that your Holy Spirit has wrought in our hearts also testify to it. That we have a better home waiting for us. So Lord, encourage us. Help us not to despair over this world, but help us to look forward over what you have planned for us in the future. And because of this, Lord, I do pray for that friend that's sitting in the pews right now, for the friend that may be listening over the internet right now who's not placed their faith in you. I pray, Lord, that you would awaken them of the state of their soul without you and that you would use that, Lord, to motivate them to cling to you, to come to you, to to realize that, that they have no hope, they have no chance, they have no freedom unless they come to you. And that they would find your son Jesus just as we have and that you would put that joy that is in their heart that would bring about abundant life knowing that whatever they endure in this world is nothing compared to the glories and the weight of it that await us in the next. We pray this all because of the finished work of Christ. In that alone, amen.